Well, good morning. Today's Bible reading, as Carl said, is from the Book of Ruth and reading chapters 1, verses 1 to 22. It can be found on page 408 of the Pew Bible, so you can follow on the screen behind me. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judea, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Amalek, and his wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Mahon and Kilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem, Judea, and went to Moab and lived there. Now Amalek, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah, and the other Ruth. After they lived there for about 10 years, both Mahon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness, as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in your home and another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud, and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought that there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? Know, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this time they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. When... Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me, The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. 
So Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by her by Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Well, thank you. And uh, thank you for having me and for uh, this chance to look at the book of Ruth together. Uh, it's a great book. It's very exciting to be looking at this. Uh, it's great for a few reasons. One of them is that this is a book of the Old Testament you can study in its entirety in quite a short period of time. So sometimes you look at the books of the Old Testament, they're so long, you kind of have to skip over bits or just look at this key passage and that key passage. But with Ruth, we can look at all four chapters, every verse in four weeks, and really get our heads around the whole story. Uh, the other thing that's great about Ruth is it's a standalone story, so in and of itself it's, it's got an awful lot to tell us, but it's also a story that in a number of ways is tied very strongly into the overall big picture, the big story of the Bible. Ties into the Old Testament narrative, and uh, as we already heard in the kids' talk, uh, really has significance even right through to Jesus. So it's a, it's a great book on lots of levels. And as we dive in, I think a good thing to ask when we start is, what's it about? What is this book about? Can we get our head around a sort of big picture framework? What's the book of Ruth about? And it's interesting, when you ask that question and you look at what other people have said the book of Ruth is about, I think you can end up a little bit on the wrong track. So when you look, for example, at books that people have written about the book of Ruth, uh, you, can, you can start off in the wrong direction. I've got some slides that I'll show you that explain what I'm meaning. Uh, here's a couple of books that are written on Ruth and Esther, both of them written on Ruth and Esther. Now, what does that immediately tell you? Someone who's writing these books thinks that Ruth and Esther go together, what's the obvious link? They're both women, and it's the, uh, these are the only two books in the Old Testament that are named after women. Uh, that's kind of that's true, true enough, but it puts you on the wrong track because you might start thinking, oh, Ruth's all about women and for women. Well, it's not actually. Uh, that is, Ruth is equally uh, for men and tells us things about men and it's good for men to love the book of Ruth as well. Uh, if you take the next slide, this is a bit more explicit, isn't it? A feminist companion to Ruth. Uh, reading Ruth, contemporary women reclaim a sacred story. It's almost saying, men, this is not for you. But that's not the case. Please don't think that. The book of Ruth is not just for women, though it says something to all of us. Uh, I found this other one on the next slide, by the way, which you won't be able to see from there, but it says, Ruth, a new translation with a philological commentary and a folk formalist folklorist interpretation. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> so it's obviously not about that. What's a, a better way to get into the book of Ruth? Well, I've done something, uh, just, uh, there's a website you can go to called Wordle. I don't know if you know this website. And you can drop a bunch of text into it and it throws you the text back in a graphic where the frequency of the word is reflected in the size of the word. So if we can get that up, this is the entire book of Ruth thrown in there. And uh, maybe those sitting in the front will be able to see what are some of the words that really leap out that might give us a hint about what this book's about. Can anyone see? What are some of the words that you can see there? Boaz, Naomi and the Lord. Uh, actually, Naomi is far more prominent in the book of Ruth than Ruth in some ways. What else can you see? Came and back. That's really interesting. 
came and back. Every chapter of the book of Ruth starts with a going out and ends with a coming back. There's four of these waves of out and back, out and back. There's a rhythm that goes with the chapters. Anything else? Name, yes, lots of names. You might be able to see from there, but here's one that's really worth looking at. Mother-in-law, next of kin, husband, daughter. A really big theme running through the book of Ruth is family. It's all about family. And uh, if, if, you ever, if you can have a closer look at this at some stage, maybe put up at the end of the service or something, you'll be able to see there's just more and more of these daughter-in-law, daughter, kinsmen, uh, again and again, sons. It's about father. It's about family. The family language comes up over and over again in the book of Ruth. So that's a good place to start. Think about the book of Ruth as a book about family. Uh, then you might say, okay, it's a book about family. And what sort of book is it? A book about a happy family, a sad family? Well, having read the first chapter together, you might say, this is a book about a family who are living in hard times, for whom life is tough. Uh, against whom God has not been favourable. This is a family doing it tough, suffering, victims of hard circumstances. That's kind of right, but it's also missing a very big point. And in fact, the first five verses of the book of Ruth, uh, really, when you look at them just slowly and carefully, paint a very different picture of the circumstances of the family at the core of the story. And once you understand what's going on with this family right in the core of the story, it's not just that things are sad and tough for them. You see, ah, something else is going on here, and this is actually determinative for the whole story of Ruth. So what I want to do is spend uh, a little bit of time in these first five verses, and once we unlock them, as I say, I think the rest of the passage, the rest of this chapter, the rest of the book will make a lot more sense. So turn with me, if you will, uh, we're on page 408 in the Pew Bibles. And from the very first verse, we have really important information that helps us understand this book. In the days when the judges ruled, hit the brakes. The time already tells us something. Now, I don't normally do lots of slides, but I've got another one, which is just a timeline. This tells us the period we're talking about. And if you know your biblical history, we start way back with creation and then the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, then Joseph and we're in Egypt and we get out of Egypt in the Exodus and then we arrive in this period of the judges. And the thing about the judges, it's a time that should have been wonderful but was terrible. You see, when you get to the book of Judges, you have entered the promised land after 400 years of slavery in Egypt, after being freed in the Exodus, led by Moses through the Red Sea, uh, wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, finally Moses preaches three long sermons on the edge of the Promised Land in the, end, in the book of Deuteronomy, and in Joshua they enter the Promised Land, and Judges, they're setting up home in, in the Promised Land. It's supposed to be brilliant, but when you read the book of Judges, you find it's terrible. In the Promised Land, the people don't love the Lord, they don't honour God, they turn away in all kinds of ways and it just spirals down and down and down. So as soon as you read the book of Ruth, he says, in the days when the judges ruled, you think, ah, this is going to be one of those 
bitter times when you think, what? It should be wonderful. And yet, chances are we're going to see things going badly because the people of Israel have rejected God. And indeed, in the very next part of that same verse, the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Well, hang on, we're in the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Why is there a famine in the land? Well, remember I said that Moses preached in Deuteronomy as they were about to enter the promised land. And when he did that, he told them how they were meant to live and the consequences of not living God's ways. And the consequences were very clear. So you go to Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 15 and following. If you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all His commandments and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses will come and overtake you. You'll be cursed in the city and cursed in the country. Your basket and your kneading trough will be cursed. The fruit of your womb will be cursed. The crops of your land and the calves of your herd and the lambs of your flock. You'll be cursed when you come in and cursed when you go out. Why is there a famine in the land in the beginning of the book of Ruth? Well, if you've been reading the Bible story up to now, the most obvious answer is because the people have rejected God. The people have sinned against God. The people have turned from God. And the consequence is there's a famine in the land. So, we read that this is actually a time when the people of Israel are rebelling against God. And then we zero down to the story of the family. A man from Bethlehem in Judah went with his wife and two sons to live for a while in the country of Moab. Hit the brakes again. We're still in verse 1. But there's a lot to learn. What's going on here? A man from Bethlehem in Judah with his wife and two sons went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Let's uh, just jump to some maps that I've got. Here's the Mediterranean, Turkey, Greece, Italy... Uh, and this is, of course, the Sinai Peninsula and uh, Israel. And if we zoom in on that, here's Israel, Sea of Galilee, the Dead Sea. And if I can keep going, that's just the promised land and the tribal areas that were allotted to Israel. Don't worry about the detail. Notice here, though, here's Jerusalem, here's Bethlehem. Here's the land of Moab. And what's happened is, uh, this is where Moses preached his sermons just before they entered the promised land. Moab was effectively, if you like, the doorway into the promised land. Moses stood at Moab, he looked out in the promised land and said, in you go. This man and his family are going out. They have turned around and they're going back out through the indoor. This is pagan land. This is the last spot that Israel had its foot on pagan soil and they left it behind and this man says you know what the going's tough here I've got a good idea let's walk out on the promised land let's leave God's land of promise and let's go back to the pagan lands let's go out the way we came in he went to the land of Moab back to pagan lands the, the place that Israel left behind he returned now, we go into verse 2, we see there's even more here that just shows us that what's going on here is not just a sad story, but ultimately, actually, a, so a story of rejection of God. The man's name was Elimelech. Uh, Elimelech is a Hebrew name, and the Hebrew name means, my God is king, Eli Melech, my God is king. 
His wife's name was Naomi, his two sons, Marlon and Killian. They're Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. Now, Bethlehem, we know from the New Testament, of course, is where Jesus was born. It's David's royal city. It's right next door to Jerusalem. And an Ephrathite is a Bethlehem native. You know, you're an Adelaidean from Adelaide. Well, you're an Ephrathite from Bethlehem. He's from Judah, the royal tribe. His name is My God is King. Everything about this man and where he comes from says he should be a faithful leader of God's people. My God is King. I'm from the royal tribe. Bethlehem and Judah. And he turns on his heel and walks out back into pagan lands. Now, he died in verse 3. Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. She was left with her two sons. In some ways, if you're reading this and you've read the whole Old Testament, you've got a kind of Jewish mindset as you go about it, you think, oh, it's sad that he died. But if you're a faithful Jew who'd stayed in the land and who'd read Deuteronomy and knew God's purposes and promises, you'd say, well, he kind of got his just desserts. He walked out on the living God. He, he, he snubbed him. He, he, he's, he's turned away from God, so it's not completely surprising that the God of life turns away from him. But his sons uh, live, and we read in verse 4, they married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other named Ruth. After they'd lived about 10 years, Marlon and Killian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, marrying Orpah and Ruth was also a bad thing to do. Back to Deuteronomy, back to the plains of Moab where Moses is teaching the people what it's going to be like when you enter the promised land. Deuteronomy 23, he says, no one born of a foreign marriage nor any of the descendants may enter the assembly of God, not even in the 10th generation. No Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of God, even in the 10th generation. And the reason is because the Ammonites and the Moabites treated Israel so badly. For they did not come to meet you with bread and water on your way when you came out of Egypt. They hired Balaam, son of Beor, from Pethor and Aram to pronounce a curse over you. These people are not to be joined to the people of Israel. But Naomi has two sons who marry Moabite women. They die and we're left with the situation of Naomi and her two daughters. So we've taken a little bit of time to go through those first five verses, the rest of the chapter will be quicker, but the point is just to make it crystal clear that this is a story actually about a family who have rejected God, who have sinned against God, who have said, we don't care about what God wants for His people, we don't care about God's ways, we don't care about God's rules, we don't care about God's place. When the going gets tough, we rack off. God says not to do something, yeah, we don't really care, we do it anyway. You have to understand, Naomi, Elimelech, their family are a family who have rejected the Lord. And the story is about what is God going to do with a family who rejects Him? What is God going to do with a family who takes no interest in His ways, but who turn on the heel and leave? Now, this is kind of unsurprising when you hear that and you think about the whole story of the Bible because the story of the Bible really is that story writ large. What does God do with people who reject Him? What does God do with people who ought to have known better 
but instead decided to follow their own desires, their own will, their own needs, and to forget about what God wanted. What will God do with them? It's a story throughout the whole Bible that, of course, culminates in Jesus. It's a story that uh, really ultimately will show us that God is the God who, despite his people's rejection, despite the fact that they have so faithlessly interacted with him, he still shows them grace. It's a story that touches on the greatest human need, the need for a solution to our problem of rebellion. Talking about Jesus, uh, one writer puts it this way. He says, if God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death, and he sent us a saviour. That's the big story of what God does in the world through Jesus. And it's a story played out in microcosm in the book of Ruth. I think as well, though, this... um, story for me even just these first few verses are quite confronting because they ask me a question about my faith and they ask me if I have a committed faith or if I have a fair weather faith that's really what this throws in my face am I someone who is only committed to God as long as life is good as long as things largely go my way, as long as my land is prosperous, so long as my family is safe, so long as I have the satisfaction in life that I want. If God stripped all those things away from me, what would I do? Would I turn and look for another God? Or would I perhaps not do something that extreme, but would I just start compromising on all the things I know that God wants me to do? Say, oh, well, God's not been blessing me in these ways, so if I just go against his will in these small little areas, that doesn't really matter. This holds a mirror up to me, and I think, to be honest with you, it's quite hard to answer, because I've not been in that kind of situation, really. I've had hardship in my life, but perhaps not as hard as this. But the challenge that I think the opening part of Ruth throws at us is what kind of Christians are we? What kind of followers of Jesus are we? Are we we slot machine Christians? You know, I put my two bucks in, I want the product at the end. If I don't get it, I'm going to kick the machine and walk away. Are we fair weather believers? Or are we people who, through thick and thin, in feast and famine, in all seasons, will be unreservedly committed to the Lord and His ways? Well, let's go back and just see how this chapter pans out. In verse 6, the fortunes of the land of Israel change. Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people, providing food for them. Uh, And now, being something of an opportunist, uh, Naomi decides, ah, well, uh, it's time to go back. Uh, It's no longer hard here, we can return to Israel and uh, now that there's prosperity there, we're happy to be associated with the land and its people and to uh, benefit from that prosperity. 
So with her two daughters, she left Moab and they head back into Israel. Naomi then tries to release uh, Orpah and Ruth from her bondage, from being connected to her as a family. This is probably one of the high points, I think, of um, Naomi's uh, life in the story. Uh, there's this, this exchange between them where she says to her two daughters in verse 8 and following that they should go back to their mother's home, go back to where they came from. The idea is that back in this culture, when the women had left their mothers and fathers and married Marlon and Killian, they really joined the broad family of Elimelech and left that family behind. Even though Marlon and Killian and Elimelech have died, they seems are feeling some obligation to belong to this family now that is really just Naomi. But Naomi's saying, no, you actually don't need to do that. Your husbands are dead. You're not joined with me anymore. And in fact, you should go home and I'm releasing you from that. She also says how um, ridiculous it would be for them to stay and expect any kind of prosperity in their lives. She says, the only thing you're going to get from me for the rest of your lives is hardship. Uh, There's going to be no blessing for you. Um, May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. They uh, resist at first. Uh, No, we'll we'll go back with you to your people. Uh, And then eventually, though, uh, she convinces Orpah, at least, to go and tells this funny story, doesn't she, in verse 12, just emphasising how ridiculous it would be. Look, you women are lovely to be committed to me, but there's no future for you with me. I mean, even if I was to get pregnant tonight and have kids in nine months' time, would you wait till they were grown up and then marry them and become my daughters-in-law again? Without No, it's, 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 it's absurd. It's not going to happen. So go. Uh, Orpah goes. Some people say that Orpah was wrong to go. They say, ah, oh, Orpah wasn't really faithful. She wasn't really committed to Naomi. But I don't really think that's the case. I think Orpah did what she was completely free to do. Uh, she accepted this release, which probably uh, was only... Naomi saying what was true anyway, the marriage bond was broken, she was no longer wedded to the family and she went back to re-establish herself in her land with her people and perhaps one day be remarried and have a new life. And I think when you see that what Orpah did was actually reasonable, then you see how ridiculously radical it is for Ruth to have done what she did because Ruth did something totally unexpected above and beyond Ruth makes this pledge this famous pledge and you may have even heard it read sometimes at weddings Uh, this is a a verse that some people like to have when they get married and we see it in verse 16 and following Ruth replies to Naomi don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you where you go I will go where you stay I will stay your people will be my people your God my God. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. This is uh, Ruth pledging herself to Naomi, pledging herself to Naomi like she had pledged herself to her husband, but now saying, I am in the family, it's a solemn pledge. And it's really quite remarkable it's not just a pledge to the person it's almost a total conversion like she's saying your people will be my people I'm going to let go my national affiliation I'm no longer in my mind going to be a Moabitess I'm going to become somehow attached to Israel 
She's saying, your God will be my God. Whatever the gods of Moab are, I leave them behind. I'm coming to you to worship the God of Israel. It's a conversion. She is boots and all, giving up her old life and coming to a new life. It's the radical thing that still happens to people today when they follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes uh, Christians can unhelpfully suggest that you can become a Christian and nothing much changes. That is, uh, we Christians are just like everyone else in the world, but we happen to sign off that Jesus is King of the universe, Lord of all, Saviour. No, when you become a Christian, everything changes. You no longer have the allegiances you had before. You no longer follow the world in the way you did before. You are prepared to give your entire life, even to death, to the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that He gave His life even to death for you, and through it guaranteed you an eternity with the Father. It's radical. And the other radical thing about Ruth here is she does this with absolutely zero hope of her life amounting to anything. If you've read ahead in the book of Ruth, you know actually things turn out well for her. But at this point, she doesn't know that. What she's saying here is, I give up my life. She anticipates, by and large, I think, that I will have no husband, I will have no security, I will have no future, I'll be a foreigner and an outsider attached to a sinner, uh, and that's okay. I go into this with an expectation of being nothing and having nothing ever for the rest of my life. It's incredible. It's incredible. It's just remarkable to see that kind of courage and dedication and loyalty and commitment. It's a rare commodity. And yet, Ruth is gone, boots and all. She's a profound contrast, isn't she, to Elimelech. She's a profound contrast to Elimelech. Elimelech was meant to stay in the first place and he left. Ruth was free to leave but she chose to stay. Elimelech, despite his name, my God is King, despite being an Ephrathite of Bethlehem, despite being of the tribe of Judah, his commitment to God was only qualified. I'll be with God if the going is good. Ruth, on the other hand, is a Moabitess. She's from the pagans. She's an outsider, a foreigner. And her commitment to God and His people and Naomi is absolute. Ruth is totally selfless in her decision. I'm doing this for Naomi. Whereas Elimelech was selfish. I'm just off to find a better life for me and my family. She's a stark, screaming contrast to Elimelech. All that Elimelech should have been, actually, we see in Ruth. And everything that we might have expected a pagan like Ruth to be is sadly found in one of the people of God, Elimelech. And this raises big questions for us, I think, about who are the people of God? Who are the people of God? You read the Old Testament and clearly the people of God are Israel, the nation of Israel, those descended from Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And that's true as a first approximation, but the lines are a bit blurry. The lines are a bit blurry because those people of God who choose to reject God and walk out on God are not anymore counted as the people of God. And those outsiders who don't have a drop of Jewish blood in them, who have no history 
of slavery in Egypt, no history of deliverance uh, through the Exodus, uh, no tie whatever to the nation of Israel, they can become part of the family of God. So who are the people of God? How do you become one? How do you remain as one? Well, it's got nothing to do with your family, nothing to do with your ethnic or cultural background, nothing to do with your personal history. It doesn't matter if you were raised in a Christian home or not. You could equally, someone who is raised in a Christian home could end up having no part in the people of God. Someone who isn't, like me, in God's mercy, can be part of the people of God. You might not grow up in a Christian nation, but you might still become part of the people of God, like the millions of believers in Iran and China today. Or you might grow up in a Christian nation and have no interest in God, like so many Australians. You see, the lines are not quite as sharp as we think. What makes someone a person of God is nothing to do really with their heritage, history, family, background. It has to do with their commitment and trust in the God who saves. In the Old Testament, we see Ruth making that commitment through Naomi to God and his people. And we see that it will culminate in the New Testament in the commitment that we are called to have in the Lord Jesus Christ who saves. It doesn't matter if your family wasn't Christian, you can still be committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. You can still benefit from his death and resurrection for your salvation if you have faith in him. And equally, if you have got a Christian background, you don't just presume on that to be in with God. You must trust and have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the measure. That's how the people of God are defined. Well, at the end of the chapter, Naomi and Ruth return to Bethlehem. When they arrive in Bethlehem, verse 19, the whole town is stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Now, it's been 10 years, so maybe they're just you know, working out who it is. But you also wonder if part of what's going on in their question is, really? She and her husband walked out when the going got tough, and now that they've heard that God is blessing the land again, she just waltzes back in. The front, the, the presumption. Can this really be Naomi? Naomi, of course, uh, talks about how hard life has been for her. Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. The Almighty has made my life very bitter. It's all God's fault. God has made my life bitter. I went away full. When I left, everything was great. But I have come back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. It's all God's fault. I didn't do anything wrong. No, God's made my life bitter. Let's blame Him. Uh, it's a bit um, embarrassing as well if you're just taking half a moment to think who she's brought back with her. The Lord sent me away full and has brought me back empty. Well, hang on, the Lord sent you away with a guy who was actually a sinner and He's brought you back with this incredibly loyal, faithful woman who's pledged her life to you. Oh no, the Lord's brought me back empty. Yeah, thanks very much. So, Naomi returns with Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law. They come back to Bethlehem. Uh, Naomi is full of blame of other people, she's full of bitterness, even wants to change her name from Naomi to Mara, which means bitter in Hebrew. Uh, Not recognising what God has done to her, graciously given her this woman to be with her, as someone who will care for her and pledge her life to her. And at the very end we see uh, this, this little hint of what's to come. They return, Naomi and Ruth, 
arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Just a hint in the last verse that there's a harvest. There's just the beginning of fruitfulness and prosperity and blessing in the land that these women have walked into. And as we move ahead in the next few weeks, you'll see that this barley harvest is really the context in which God will show his new, deep and uh, incredible grace to Naomi and to Ruth. But we'll leave that for the weeks ahead. Let me pray. Um, Our Heavenly Father, we pray, uh, giving you thanks for the story of Naomi and Ruth. And we are sobered by the fact that Elimelech and his family had so little regard for you and your grace and your ways. And we're humbled and overwhelmed by the fact that a young woman who had no connection could have such a great heart and desire to be connected to your people. And we pray we'd learn from these things, Lord, the seriousness of sin and rejection but also the amazing ways that you fold all kinds of people in, despite their pedigree or qualifications, just because you work good in their hearts. Please help us, Lord, to continue to learn these lessons as we study the book of Ruth, and indeed through our whole lives. That we need to be people who live loving you, and that you're a God who loves even those who have no natural claim. We thank you for your grace in Jesus' name. Amen.